welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So the show's back up after a scheduled one-week break over the Christmas period, and we'll be back to our regular schedule of releasing a new episode every Saturday. To start the new year, we'll be asking, what is character? What does it mean to have good character? And what are the different factors that determine how well people behave. My guest for this conversation will be Professor Christian B. Miller. Christian is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Forest Wake University. He holds a B.A. in Philosophy from Princeton and a Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame. His main areas of research are metaethics, moral psychology, moral character, action theory, and philosophy of the religion. He is also director of the Beacon Project, and he was the director of the Character Project. He's the author of over 80 papers, as well as three books, Moral Character and Empirical Theory, Character and Moral Psychology, and the book we discussed today, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? As always, if you like this podcast, please do like and subscribe. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, RSS feed, a few other different things. And you can follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. So the links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And yeah, please do check that out. If you're a long-time listener and would like to support the podcast... You can do so by forwarding episodes to friends or sharing them on your own social media. And if you're able to support on a more monetary basis, at whatever level, you can sponsor the podcast on Patreon. So that's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and the links to that are on the website as well. So at the end of the episode, I'll do an outro where I talk about all of the amazing guests we're going to have coming on in the new year. For now, though, it is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Christian B. Miller discussing character. I am joined today by Christian Miller. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. So, what are your main interests philosophically? Um, If someone asks, what do you do? You would obviously say you work in philosophy, but beyond that, what what interests you and what are the ideas that you're excited by? Sure. So, when I was in graduate school, I was mainly working in another area of ethics called metaethics. I was thinking about foundational questions about morality. Where does morality come from? Is it objective? Is it not objective? And that uh, occupied me in my dissertation and then several years into my uh, time here at Wake Forest. But eventually I kind of got burned out on that issue. I published a fair number of papers and and so forth, but just kind of uh, uh, got a little stagnant for me. So I shifted gears and and pivoted into the area of character, another uh, topic in in the broad field of ethics. And I've been working in that area for the last 10 years or so, mainly that's my main uh, research interest, I would say. So I'm looking at the topic of character from a variety of different perspectives. I'm looking at it from a philosophical perspective, trying to unpack what the concept of character involves and related notions like virtue and vice. I'm also looking at it from an empirical perspective. So what does the psychological literature have to tell us about how good or bad our character actually is, not what it should look like, but what, it, as a matter of fact, it looks like. And I'm also finally looking at character from a more developmental perspective. So what kind of character uh, should we strive for? And specifically, what kind of practical, concrete steps can we take developmentally to uh, cultivate and grow and, be, uh, and shape our character in a better direction? So that's my main area of research these days. Let's start with the concept then, if that works for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's one of those things where almost everyone will agree in theory, you know, having a good character is better than a a bad character, right? But then 
As philosophers, I think you might want to say, well, what do you mean by having a good character? Because you imagine most people are walking around with at least implicitly quite different ideas about what that would entail. Sure. So let's back up and do some stage setting, I think, first. Uh, Character comes in a variety of different kinds. There's moral character, there's uh, epistemic or or more intellectual character, there's uh, athletic character, aesthetic character. My focus has been on the topic of moral character. And and within that uh, more specific area of character, I'm uh, wanting to divide moral character into the moral virtues and the moral vices. That's nothing new. Of course, that's a traditional distinction. But I think of moral character traits, whether they're virtues or vices, as psychological dispositions, which dispose people to think, feel, and act in morally relevant ways. So a moral virtue, like honesty, for example, which when when triggered or when activated, will lead people to think morally relevant thoughts about honesty, say, uh, it's wrong to tell this lie or it's wrong to cheat on this test, to have morally relevant motivations, like in this case, perhaps uh, be motivated not to cheat on the test, or be motivated thoughts and motives will give rise to other things being equal, morally relevant action. So in this case, not cheating on the test or not telling a lie or to flip it around, telling the truth on the stand in the courtroom under oath. So to sum it up there, I think of moral character in general as involving these three components, a disposition to think, feel, and act in morally relevant ways. Moral character comes in two varieties, the moral virtues and the moral vices. Clearly the virtues are uh, going to be the, the positive, I think morally intrinsically good traits that we should cultivate, even though, as a matter of fact, most of us don't, uh, I think, uh, instantiate them. And the vices are the opposites. So examples of virtues include honesty, compassion, kindness, courage, temperance, fortitude, uh, generosity, and the like. And then you can just invert those in the case of the vices, and you get things like dishonesty, uh, cruelty, um, cowardice, intemperance, and injustice. So that's a little bit of maybe conceptual background as far as how I approach the topic of moral character. Great, fantastic. So I do have some questions with regards to the virtues and vices of sort of what makes the virtues virtuous or why those specific qualities. Before we do, though, you do. let's do a little bit more stage setting. You do a bit and you talked in some of your other interviews about why we should care at all in the first place about having good moral character, right? Um, That's right. Do you, is there any stage setting you'd want to do there? Because my first question is, you offer an argument, your first argument is just that it actually might make us happier, like our actual, even just from like a hedonism perspective, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. might feel happier being honest, say. But my read of what you were saying is you don't actually regard that as necessarily the best or maybe the most fundamental argument. Very, very good, yes. So uh, in a little bit of context here, uh, my most recent work is a book called The Character Gap, How Good Are We? And this is a trade book uh, aimed at uh, bringing ideas about character that I've worked on for many years to a broader audience. And in the first chapter of that book, I do the kind of conceptual work. What is character? What is virtue? And what is vice? And then in the second chapter, which you're alluding to here, I entertain that topic of why care about character? Why is it important? Why is it uh, something we should devote our precious time to in order to develop a Uh, a good character. So in that chapter, I go over a variety of different reasons. I don't think there's any one reason that's kind of demonstrative or is it kind of proof or anything like that. Uh, I think it's more of a kind of cumulative case that we uh, see these uh, reasons together and they collectively make for a strong case for uh, uh, developing a better character in myself and others. Uh, Hopefully others are persuaded that this is an important thing to do. Now, uh, we could talk about it, as many of those as you want. Uh, one that you've already alluded to is a more, uh, as you said, uh, self-interested or egoistic reason. Why don't uh, Why don't you just quickly run through the four in like bullet point form, and then sure, sure. we can start with the sort of egotistical. Sure. So, so egoistic and actually, uh, in the long run, is beneficial to us. Uh, second reason is that it ha- it makes society tends to make society better off irrespective of whether we individually benefit in the process or not. Uh, Third reason is that on religious grounds, there's uh, lots of reasons to think that it's important to cultivate character for those 
people who are religious are going to have those internal reasons to their particular religion. Uh, fourth reason is that it seems like it's intrinsically good, uh, just good in and of itself. And then uh, fifth reason is a more emotional reason, which is that when we look at examples of exemplars of virtue, moral heroes, saints, and the like, we're often powerfully moved, or at least moved to some extent, uh, emotionally, uh, when we see their character on display. We have a, a reaction of uh, admiration for their character, which can subsequently give rise to emotional responses of emulation to try and become more like their character. So that's the that's the bullet per point version. Obviously, I, there's a lot more to say about all of them, but uh, why don't you take us where where you want to go? So let's let. No, I I had a few questions about the sort of um, egotistic motivations for for having a good character. I mean, where I'm coming from on this is. Um, you talked about meta-ethics. I've always been broadly sympathetic to what you might call um, a consequentialist, broadly. And I think utilitarian can be a little narrow. But a broadly consequentialist ethics. But then, obviously, you do get into the cases where, like, um, what what is your motivation ultimately to be good if you're taking a hedonistic perspective? And the answer a lot of people will give is that actually your own interest, broadly understood, is usually, not always, but usually not well served by acting in immoral ways for two reasons. Like, number one, if you go and rob a store, the, the chances of you getting caught are like high, even if they're like single digits, are high enough to make that not a rational action. And then number two is we kind of have internal checks on that. We feel guilt, remorse, something like being dishonest and having to live constantly lying is just an incredibly unpleasant feeling, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, is there anything you'd want to build off that as like a motivation for like actually a lot of the time the thing to do that's going to make you most happy is to live in a classically good way? Yeah, so um, so I, I think those are valuable points. Uh, what I say is kind of building on that is to look at some of the uh, empirical literature as well. So there have been studies, although there need to be a lot more, which uh, examine on the one hand uh, character, uh, particular character traits like hope or generosity, and the other, on the other hand, measures of things we care about, things like uh, academic achievements or life satisfaction or depression or stress or these kind of things. And they find over and over again correlations between uh, increases in the virtue and increases in the good things for the individual and decreases in the bad things for the individual. So uh, taking your points and getting a little bit more empirical support for them using well-crafted studies uh, makes the case even stronger that developing a good character could be in our long-term self-interest. Now. I don't want to overstate the case, though, so I want to be uh, try and be a little balanced here. Two caveats. First, these are uh, almost always correlational studies, so we have to be careful about the causation and the causal arrow. Uh, secondly, I, I get nervous about um, talking about self-interest too much in this context of character. Uh, so uh, I think how I'm using this argument, or this, uh, at least this, um, if it's not an argument, at least these considerations, uh, is to try and spark people's interest, to get people hooked initially. Um, some people might not be so moved by some of the other considerations, but they might say, wow, uh, developing a good character might actually decrease my stress or increase my life satisfaction in the long run, make, make, make me happier in a, in a loose sense of happiness. And uh, that might get them more on board or more readily on board with the topic of developing character than some of the other considerations. But if it just stayed at that level, if it was just I'm pursuing virtue for the sake of making my life go better in some subjective subjective way, um, I would get nervous about that. Uh, uh, that just uh, starts at the egoistic level, but doesn't seem to ever get past the egoistic level. And for me, virtues ultimately require uh, getting past your own psychology and thinking about what benefits yourself and thinking about instead about what, or in addition, what benefits others for their own sake. So a compassionate person, make that a little bit more concrete, a compassionate person ultimately doesn't just think about helping others for the sake of, say, reducing their stress 
or avoiding guilt, I'll use your example, um, but a compassionate person has to be motivated ultimately by what's good for other people for their own sake, altruistically, not egoistically. So the story could start with egoistic motivation, but I don't think it could end there. And presumably if you found a data point that cut the other way, so an inverse correlation between a particular desirable trait and a particular outcome, for instance, I'm not an expert on this, but I believe there is some data to the effect that being compassionate makes you less effective at wage negotiations. I mean, that may or may not be true empirically, but it doesn't seem the most implausible thing in the world. Right, right. Um, That wouldn't or at least to your account, that wouldn't um, invalidate your belief that um, it's nonetheless a good thing to be compassionate in general. Right, so it would not for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it makes the, de- the empirical data more messy, but overall the empirical data might still point in the same direction of cultivating virtue, even though it's not a clear-cut um, uh, uh, matter anymore. But two, I you know, also appeal to other considerations besides the self-interested ones. So those other considerations would stand, would still be there to supplement or maybe even outweigh as far as our self-interest is concerned. So how do you feel, because this is, this is one of the ones I found tricky, how do you feel about cases where it's not where where the cost of doing good is non-trivial. So mm-hmm. where like cases where individual interest and um, collective interest or global good or whatever you want to call it radically diverge. So I'm not talking about like you can make a million dollars by cheating on your test. I'm more talking like um, your wife or your daughter or something is drowning, but so's the guy who's just cured cancer. And um, the global good will be best served by saving the guy who has the potential to cure cancer. But obviously your good, and I don't just mean your rational self-interest or even your hedonic good, but what you really most deeply desire in the world will be served by... Um, are you married? Say so it's your wife, right? Um, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, me too. Um, so... Those 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 are cases I find quite challenging, and I honestly haven't got a better answer than to just say this is a case where the individual good and the global good just diverge, and there's not a clean answer there. And if that if an individual were actually in that circumstance, then it would be better for all of us if they saved the guy who was going to cure cancer. But no one, I think, would ever blame someone for for saving their wife. How how do you think about those sorts of yeah, cases? Yeah, no, I, I think of it exactly the same way you do. It turns out. Um, so I I I, uh, I think it's a very hard case. I don't have any kind of easy answers, uh, but I agree with you on the on the bl- point about blame too. So. One way to take that discussion would be into the area of normative ethics. Uh, so, so far, we've just been talking about character in general, and we've talked about some empirical considerations, but we haven't done any normative ethics or ethical theory. So we could consult Kantian ethics. We could consult utilitarianism or consequentialism. We could look at the other options on the table and see what they would prescribe. And you could, perhaps you could say the consequentialist would require you to rescue the scientist. Um, perhaps uh, a different theory would say something different, and we can get into debates about the merits of those theories themselves. You might think that I, as someone working on character, would go to a virtue ethics perspective. So for those listeners who are, are uh, coming to this from not from a, um, a philosophical background, uh, in ethical theory these days, the leading options and thinking about right and wrong and good and bad, and how should we live our lives morally speaking, are consequentialism, Kantian ethics, and virtue ethics. I think it's fair, pretty un- uncontroversial thing to say. There are other contenders out there as well. There's, it's, a, it's a long list. Um, so you might expect me as a, someone working on character to go to virtue ethics. It, it harkens back to Aristotle and Plato and is uh, quite a lively view today as well. Um, but I don't uh, ever get into those debates in my book, The Character Gap, uh, because I don't want to be too partisan about any of this. I want to just try and you're, talk about... You're trying to offer something that could plausibly appeal to anyone in any of those exactly right. three exactly camps. Right. So that's what I officially say. I right. mean, my, my unofficial 
just talking to you and, and everyone else, so to speak, uh, is um, I'm skeptical of any kind of ethical theory that's going to give us a quick decision procedure, uh, as if there's a one rule or a um, kind of step-by-step uh, procedure we're supposed to follow, which if we do it, that's going to generate the right answer for us so that we could take the case you offered and plug it into the decision procedure, kind of crank some wheels, metaphorically speaking, and get out the answer, you know, obligatory to save the scientist or uh, optional, permissible to save either one, whatever you choose. Um, so it's, I think it's gonna be a much more complicated matter uh, where we have to use things like our practical wisdom and weigh up the particular considerations in the situation. Uh, and situations can vary from, you know, ever so slightly, which could give us a different weighing of the considerations. So we need to go situation by situation, weigh up the considerations, and try our best to determine what the objectively, not subjectively, not relative, but objectively correct answer is in that situation. So not in the book. I know in the book you are more interested in just making a case that could appeal to any one of those camps. But just as your actual view you're taking a morally realist view, which is just to say that you think morality is real. There is a sort of, there is a truth to be had here, but you're not placing both feet firmly in any one of those three starting points. Well, yes and yes, but with a little bit of background. Um, so in ethics, there, there are three um, kind of, uh, subfields in ethics today. There's metaethics, there's normative ethics, and there's no applied ethics. Metaethics has to do with the foundations of morality. So, uh, you know, is morality objective or or not? Is it relative? Is it subjective? Then there's the the normative ethical discussion we just had about different theories of what morality actually says. And then there's applied ethics where we talk about things like abortion and death penalty, euthanasia. Uh, you can. Um, there's interesting discussion to be had about the relationship between metaethics and normative ethics. So you can uh, be a moral realist and then hold a variety of different normative ethical positions. Uh, you can be a moral relativist and hold a variety of different metaethical, I mean, a, a normative ethical positions, I'm sorry. So if you want to know my, my own view, it's uh, I, in the case of metaethics, uh, I hold a moral realist position. That by itself, so I do believe that morality is objective. It's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, constructed by human beings, either actual human beings or improved hypothetical human beings. Uh, it's not relative to cultures or individuals. That by itself doesn't, in my mind, uh, push me in any particular direction when it comes to normative ethics. Uh, so merely being a moral realist doesn't, you know, give tip the balance in favor of Kantian ethics or consequentialism or virtue ethics, anything like that. So I'm, I'm free to mix and match. You're, you're saying I, that there's a truth to be had, but that doesn't commit you to a specific version of the truth a priori. Very, very nice. Yeah, much much better than I was <laughs> I put it. So that, that particular truth could be best captured by consequentialists, it could be best captured by Kantians, virtue ethicists, uh, or others, uh, and that, that's, a, that's a second step in the discussion. Uh, what else would you want to bring online? Because I think the cases I give, that to me is the most compelling, that really is the most compelling way to me of asking the question, why should we be good? Because um, when people are like, well, why don't I just go around killing people? You can answer that without getting beyond egotism, right? You know what I mean? Like, why don't I just go around doing evil things? Well... Because, dude, I mean, do you really want to? And would that really be in your interest? So the sort of, like, would mm -hmm. you save your wife or the scientist? Well, you can think of other examples, but those sorts of cases, I find really put the hardest point on, like, why we should be moral. On a sort of more practical side, is there anything else you'd want to bring online? Well, thinking about cases of, or, or I think you mentioned in your book, people who sacrificed greatly to save mm -hmm. Jews in the Second World War or something. Right. right I mean, right, that, right. that's something of an easy, easier case to defend because you can sort of feel the good of it. But when it comes to these cases of like radical divergences, what else would you want to bring online to sort of justify you still want to behave morally? Yeah, whatever yeah. that might mean in the circumstance. Yeah. Um, so, 
uh, I may not have much much to offer here, but um, let me say this. I am not out to try and argue with a skeptic here. Uh, I'm not trying to convince someone who's outside of the moral landscape or the moral uh, game to come into it and start uh, trying to improve their character. Uh, when I'm writing this popular book, uh, my intention is to reach an audience who I think is already interested in this topic, uh, is already you know, cares to some extent about morality in general, maybe uh, is not as familiar with character or virtue and is, wants to learn more about that. And so I'm, I'm uh, kind of assuming or hoping that there's already a foundation in place to build upon and then appealing to some considerations that that person will already likely think are important. So, uh, for example, considerations about uh, uh, the importance of a, a good society, irrespective of whether you individually benefit from being in that society or not. Uh, isn't it, is, don't you want to live in a, uh, don't you think it's important for our society to be just uh, or increase in its justice when we see rampant injustice or that there to be more honesty in our society when we see lots of dishonesty? Even if you particularly uh, in your day-to-day -day life might not see many benefits from that, uh, don't you think that that's a, a valuable thing? Uh, or, um, you know, a, a different point is the one that you said about emotional responses. Uh, when you look at uh, someone like Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman, or the example you're alluding to is Leopold Socha, uh, isn't it um, something in our lived experience that we often emotionally respond to that and want to emulate that person, even if it involves tremendous sacrifice on our part? Uh, maybe it's precisely because we see them sacrificing that we are emotionally moved ourselves to sacrifice as well. And if it's not in those cases of distant uh, exemplars, what about in our own life? Uh, are there parents, are there friends, are there coworkers, are there neighbors who stand out from the crowd, morally speaking, and who you just admire and maybe you admire them because of their character. They have something in their character that um, really resonates with you, that calls out to you to change your own life so that it might uh, better mirror their life. Even if in the process you have to sacrifice more of your own self-interest than you would have otherwise. So, Can I offer, not exactly a critique, but just a thought on this is... I mean, in in a sense, like all of all of what you're saying could be applicable or just the first level, like it's in your own um, hedonic interest, not in the sense of your immediate hedonic state or even like rational self-interest understood as an economic point, but as in like what is the total set of pleasures in the plural that you want to experience throughout your life. Um, being inspired by other people is surely a very important part of the lives we want to lead. And if you take a very broad plural hedonism, not just as like what's satisfying in the moment, but more like what sort of life could you look back on on the end of it and see that was that was really valuable and well spent. You could still, you could make all of these cases without getting out of a mm. sort of narrow case and just say, hey, does it, would it doesn't, doesn't, have you ever inspired someone morally, even in a small way? Like, how important was that to you? And like, how, how, how much would you not want to give that feeling up and to give that, not to give that memory up? Do you not want to do more of that? Yeah, so um, I, I wonder if um, I can agree with you to some extent, and then maybe it's going to be the terms are going to be really important. So uh, if sometimes you said it was important, sometimes it was uh, a matter of pleasure. Uh, so what's the real motivation here? Um, I think if it's if it's our if we're thinking in the long run, uh, these things are important to us, or uh, don't you think this these things could be important to you? And therefore, they uh, give you reason to care about becoming a virtuous person. I'm, I'm, I'm quite fine with that. Um, is it, don't you think these things are important to you because they are going to give you pleasure in the long run? And that's why they're important. So it's, it ultimately bottoms out in the pleasure you get in the long run. Um, then I, I, again, come back to our earlier discussion and worry that if it ultimately just bottoms out in I'm motivating to become virtuous so that I can get this pleasure in the long run, uh, that actually works against the project of becoming virtuous, ultimately. Um, because ultimately, at least certain virtues, if not all virtues, require 
moving beyond an egoistic perspective, uh, where I, I'm understanding this is here uh, 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 acquiring pr pleasure for yourself in the long run, uh, and it requires instead adopting an non-egoistic perspective, either an altruistic perspective, a dutiful perspective, or some other perspective that takes one outside of oneself and one's own pleasure. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we want to sort of descend down this rabbit hole. I guess there's a there's an account you could give where you're sort of trading off two very different types of pleasure. One might be like material self-interest or even like happiness, and the other type of pleasure might be um, a sense of purpose in leading a life that you see as ultimately moral and conforming to a higher morality, whatever that might mean to you. But but let's, um, unless you've got anything you want to dig in on that, let, let's get to the specifics of, of virtue, because you have, um, and this is just fairly in line with um, a lot of Christian thought, right, a list of specific virtues and corresponding vices, that you would sort of say this is, um, uh, let me start that sentence again. So let's let's get into the specifics of this. So I guess the first question would be, how do you as a philosopher derive your list of virtues and vices? Is this, do you view this as just a truth that's accessible from the armchair? Or are you more looking at what do people in history and societies generally, what, what do people empirically generally agree are good things, at least? Yeah, great, um, great question. So in the book, I actually don't provide a list. Uh, and I do that on purpose. Uh, because I want to uh, not close the door or kind of say that the list ends here. Uh, I What I said to do is um, call upon some, I think, widely agreed upon virtues as my main examples and focus on those. So I talk a lot about honesty, for example. I talk a lot about compassion. Uh, and I, I hope that those are relatively uncontroversial examples for my readers and they can just buy into the fact that these are virtues and we can go from there, make progress and trying to think how compassionate are we and then how can we take practical steps towards becoming more compassionate. Uh, so I never actually give a complete exhaustive list. And, it, and frankly, I don't know if I could do that. Uh, I, I don't think I have in my own like, you know, research drawer in my desk here. Uh, I, I can open up the drawer and pull up my list. Uh, I think it's... Uh, going to be a matter of continued investigation. When I, um, that, that, that sounds like it dodges the question. So to take the question more directly, though, uh, when I do think about what's on the list, even if I don't think it's exhaustive, uh, I use a variety of different sources. Um, I, I do the kind of philosophical thing about consulting my intuitions, does this seem to be a virtue or not? So when I think about honesty, uh, I do the kind of historical thing, historically in the history of philosophy, uh, has this uh, has honesty been considered a virtue? That's pretty straightforward. Uh, but I also kind of do the more empirical things since so much of my research is informed by psycho psychological experiments and, and, and studies. So uh, what about psychologists who have surveyed individuals and asked them, is this a virtue or is this a vice? Or is this a positive trait or is this not a positive trait? Uh, what about more anthropological studies uh, looking at different cultures? Are there some traits which seem to show up pretty uniformly of, across a variety of traits, I mean, I'm sorry, across a variety of cultures. When I look at these different sources of information, uh, I try and kind of tri triangulate from them, not privileging any one source of information, but just draw on all those different sources and see what um, character traits uh, check the most boxes or do the best uh, in showing up in all these different sources of information. Yeah, I mean, I think my next question will be partially answered by what you just said. But yeah, because I was going to say, if you're sort of drawing on what most people most of the time understand it, then you have to reckon with ideological and values diversity. Even within our own society, people have quite radically different ideologies and values. And then even like you know, liberals and conservatives in the US, those are both tiny, tiny variants on one set of historical values that are fairly unique socially and historically and so on. Um, and then if you just go through all of human history, you're covering an absolutely vast terrain where there may be some recurring features, but 
for everything that you could find that seems common-ish, it's been interpreted in radically different ways, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's very unique. Right, that's right. So uh, I think we want to distinguish two questions here. One is, uh, what character traits count as virtues or not? And then secondly, okay, if this is a virtue, how should we understand it? So uh, first of all, um, do we want to make a case that honesty is even a virtue in the first place? Or humility is another one that's maybe more controversial because sometimes people say humility is a vice, sometimes people say humility is a virtue. Let's suppose we can make that case that, say, honesty is a, a more clear-cut case, uh, is a virtue. Well, then there's a further question of how to unpack that. What does honesty involve? Uh, what would it require in this situation? What would it require in this other situation? Uh, in one culture, perhaps, it would require uh, telling the truth in a very forthright manner, and another culture would be uh, telling the truth in a very oblique or uh, indirect manner. So what I do, because I don't want to, that's a huge book, that's a huge project, these are big issues. My strategy for trying to cut to the chase in a trade book for a popular audience was to look for traits where there'd be wide agreements that they're virtues, like compassion and honesty, and then try to focus on instances of them, again, where there would be wide agreements. So for honesty, I'd, I'd focus on um, is cheating on a test uh, where it's clear that it's a test and there's a, a you know, clear assumption that you're not supposed to cheat, is cheating on that test an example of honesty? Well, obviously not, right? Um, is, uh, is not coming to the aid of someone who's screaming in pain, other things being equal, an example of compassion? Well, obviously not. Uh, so I try to come up with examples and situations and uh, maybe more, more uh, uh, requirements uh, of honesty and the compassion, the like, where I think it's fairly clear what the answer is, where we can get behind um, what the right analysis is. And then I go from there and say, well, as a matter of fact, how well do people do in those situations? So when they're given that opportunity to cheat, uh, do people take that opportunity to cheat or not? And when there's an emergency happening in the next room and someone's screaming in pain, do people actually come to help or not? And so those kind of, uh, I think, you know, familiar cases widely agreed upon cases, give me a good starting point in drawing conclusions about how good we actually are, whether we actually are instantiating virtues like honesty or compassion. Great. That's my methodology. Yeah, I guess one more question before we get to the empirical stuff. As this was a while ago, I studied it, but I remember when I did like Renaissance political thought, where the idea of the virtues was very central to their sort of moral and political theory. There was always this sort of question of, like, you could even make it a play on words, like, in virtue of what are the virtues virtuous? What what makes the, what virtue makes the virtues virtuous? In that, I think, I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, you would want to say that it is sort of intrinsically good, to be honest, um, even if perhaps the overall utilitarian, you know, calculus of that might not cash that out in any individual instance. And it would be good even in cases where honesty isn't a norm. So, you know, we can have a sort of theoretical discussion about what is the norm historically and how people have understood it historically. But you would still want to sort of put a full stop somewhere and say, but it is virtuous, to be honest. What makes honesty a good thing? Yes, and uh, there have been a different variety of different proposals. Uh, and I um, have to confess that I don't really have a worked out one. Um, so I'm, uh, I mean, we can, there are naturalistic proposals, which understand it in terms of uh, uh, evolutionary criteria, for example. There are supernatural proposals, which understand it in terms of uh, emulating or reflecting the virtues of a divine being. Um, there are egoistic proposals, going back to our earlier discussion, which understand them in terms of, uh, say, long-term self-interest. And uh, I may have some critical things to say about other proposals, but uh, uh, we try to be very forthcoming here. I don't really have a, uh, a worked out account, a detailed theory of my own to offer. So for, for better or for worse, um, can't help you out too much there. It sounds almost though like your view would be there's a number of different ways you could go about ultimate justification and you find some stuff plausible and some stuff implausible from each one of them. 
that that's exactly right. So uh, this goes along with my trying to be very ecumenical in my in my writing, uh, not wanting to take a stance and say, well, you have to be you know a supernaturalist if you want to adopt my treatment of virtue, or you have to be uh, you adopt this kind of evolutionary ethical approach. Uh, you know, closing doors to other people who might be interested in character, but not wanting to go these further steps. So I just w- want to step back and say, look, uh, where the, whatever your justification is, whatever your starting point is, uh, can't we come to some agreements that uh, something like honesty or compassion are good things intrinsically, uh, they're worth cultivating, and we should try and make the effort to do so. Right, because like, even if like, our ultimate motivations are different, and you could add in the religious element to this as well. You could say, "Look, I'm a non-believer. Are you? If you don't mind a personal question, are you? Uh, are you a Christian? A believer?" I'm. Uh, I'm religious myself. Yes. Yes. Uh, so we could. We could even never mind meta ethics. You could say it like this. You could say, "Well, your justification for being honest might be that um, it says so in the Bible or religious teaching or whatever." And my justification might be that just seems like a welfare maximizing rule. But so bloody what? Like, let's actually just think about. <laughs> Like, if this is, if we're both agreeing, albeit for different reasons, then how do you instantiate that in the world? Right, that's right. That's, that's very well put. And there will be some divergence, no doubt, on particular cases where different justifications might lead to different conclusions about specific instances where uh, matters of cheating come into play or matters of uh, stealing or, or uh, helping or harming. But by and large, there's going to be a wide area of agreement. And, and there, if we find that people, as a matter of fact, are not doing the honest thing or the compassionate thing, however we justify those virtues, uh, then there's still uh, a good case to be made that we need to be paying attention to those virtues and trying to come up with ways to bridge the character gap, as I call it, to try and uh, have our character better reflect the virtuous character it should reflect, however we justify that virtuous character. Cool. So let's let's finish with the empirical stuff because this can be really quite shocking to people who aren't <laughs> familiar with the empirical literature, which I'm not saying I'm like crazy familiar with it. Um, I think your punchline is both how bad and how good we could be. I'll add one more level to that and get you to riff off it, which is how small the inputs in terms of triggering someone's behavior psychologically are to get very different, and this isn't between different, this is the same individual, just with different tweaked inputs, between getting them to do appalling things and getting them to do highly benevolent things, and how little we are aware of the things that tend to trigger us to do one or the other. So do you want to build off that and maybe give us some examples? Yeah, that's very well put. So my overall position here now, as we turn to the empirical discussion, and I can't do much from the armchair as a philosopher. I can't just like sit here and figure out how good people's character actually is. That would be rather hard to do. Uh, so I go over to psychology and I uh, read hundreds of studies going back to 1950s and 60s, looking at how participants behaved in a variety of different situations where a moral task was involved or moral choices confronted them. And so what I, after having looked at these studies, kind of collectively do uh, or what I do is collectively, um, sorry, what I do after having looked at these studies is paint a picture of what I think those studies collectively tell us. And that picture is one of mixed characters, what I call mixed character, where we have some good sides to our character, but some bad sides to our character. Enough, though, to prevent us from being virtuous and vicious as well. So we're not good enough to count as virtuous, but also not bad enough to count as Vicious, we're somewhere in the middle. We're a mixed bag. And there are plenty of studies we could talk about to highlight each of those. Uh, But you're right. One striking feature of those studies is that it's often a very small situational feature of the situation that the participants are in, which can make a big difference to their subsequent behavior. So let me give you an initial example just to warm us up and then get into some other examples where more is at stake, where bigger bigger matters of morality are revealed. the one just to come more like for, for fun is this. Uh, in the 1990s, the psychologist Robert Barron looked at helping in a shopping mall and he had control participants. First of all, they didn't, no one knew that they were in a study. These were just people who were just going about their business in the shopping mall. 
but he saw he said, I'm going to make the control participants those who have walked by clothing stores. And I'm going to have a confederate approach a person like that and ask them to help make change for a dollar. OK, well, you know, not much at stake, morally speaking, so we don't want to go too far into this study. But it's really interesting because of what happens with the experimental group. But first, the control group, about 15 percent of them helped. So not much going on there. The experimental group, though, was the people, different people now, not the same people, same day, same shopping mall, same helping task. But these were ones who had instead walked past Mrs. Fields cookies or Cinnabons and had experienced the smell coming from those kind of places. Um, well, they subsequently had the opportunity to help. And on average, it was about 60 to 65 percent of those participants helped versus 15 percent in the control group. That's a huge difference, huge effect in, in psychology. And yet the main uh, difference is small. It was the smell in their environment which had some kind of psychological impact on them, such that they subsequently were much more motivated to help. And presumably, though, they were completely unaware of what yeah. actually caused the difference. Yeah. And if you yeah. asked them, nobody would bloody go, well, you know, I decided to help because I smelled this cookie. That's just not operative <laughs> psychologically. That's, that's exactly right. So unfortunately, they did not do uh, kind of follow-up studies afterwards where they asked them, well, why did you help? Uh, but we know, we know that that would not have been something they would have put down if such a, a, a checklist or a survey was the underlying psychological explanation. The leading explanation is that the positive smell put those participants in a good mood, increased their mood, boosted their mood, which subsequently triggered a desire to maintain a good mood. And then soon after, here was a helping opportunity, which was unconsciously, not consciously, but unconsciously seen as a means to maintain the good mood. So whether that's a, the true story or not, I don't know, but it's the leading psychological explanation now. So that's uh, helping, it's occurring, that's good, that's a thumbs up for that. The underlying motivational story though is not one which I would call virtuous. It's a, a motivational story where people are helping so as to maintain their own momentary good mood that's, uh, it does not count as a, a virtuous motivation in my book. Okay, so that's one to illustrate your point about small uh, situational manipulations. But you might say, well, so what? I mean, that's just making change for a dollar in a shopping mall. It's not like we're... Yep, so, uh, so here's another one. Uh, we, could, we could talk about a torture case. Um, here's one where it, it's maybe even more disturbing than a torture case in this sense. Um, the torture case that's most familiar to us from the psychological literature is the Milgram shock experiments from the 1960s. Uh, those, that's where uh, participants were told to give an exam to someone in the next room. Every wrong answer that the person got, they were supposed to turn the shock dial up more and more. The shock dial uh, has an XXX level at the very end, which looks like it's uh, going to be very, very painful. Participants uh, are in a room with an authority figure, the authority figure if there's any, ever any resistance by the participant, we'll say things like, please continue, or you must continue. And 66%, uh, or at least uh, you know, a high percentage, um, usually in the 60s, of participants uh, will turn that shock dial up all the way to the XXX level and seemingly kill, first torture, but then ultimately kill a person in another room. Now, of course, we, we, for those who would who are not familiar with this study, it doesn't actually happen, so don't get too you know, freaked out by it. Uh, it's all rigged, it's all you know, fake, but the participant doesn't know that. Now here, this is why I say um, maybe not the most dramatic study, because here you, you have a very tangible uh, situational factor at work, which is the authority figure standing next to you in the, you know, the white coat, looking very official, kind of representing the institution of science and so forth. So that's an unusual and pretty, uh, pretty tangible uh, you know, factor in the situation. Let me give you one more if there's, if there's time. Um, one more example, though, where uh, you've got more subtle manipulation going on, and yet uh, the consequences are very disturbing once again. And this also has to do with research in the 1960s on what's come to be called the bystander effect or the group effect. So here, 
an engineer participant coming in for a study, you're told that your job is to fill out a survey, you're ushered into a room, told to sit down, you're given the paperwork and a pen, and you know the person says, I'll be in the next room, uh, and you're working away on your survey, the person comes back with another sur uh, participants, the person in charge comes back with another participant, that person uh, sits down at the table with you, works on the survey as well. So the two of you are working on the survey, the person in charge is left, going to the next room. A few minutes later, you hear very clearly a loud crash in the next room. Then you hear screaming, you hear things like, uh, ow, ow, this ladder's falling on my leg, I can't get off, ow, 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 so, you know, help me. What would you do? Well, you know, whenever, uh, whenever we talk about this with an audience, you know, whenever experimenters present this to, uh, you know, pe people on the street, they say, of course, I would help immediately. I would do something. I mean, that's obvious. Well, not so obvious. It de really depends upon what that stranger in the room with, with you does too. So in this famous uh, study, uh, it's called the, um, this is from the 1996, uh, 1969 called the Lady in Distress Study. Uh, if the stranger in the room with the participant does nothing, then the participant overwhelmingly will do nothing as well. Only 7% of participants helped in any form when the person they were with in the other room did nothing themselves. Whereas if they were a different participants were alone by themselves filling out the survey, 70% of them helped. So 7% versus 70% where the only relevant difference was this uh, lack of helping by a stranger, which again, if you asked participants afterwards, why didn't you help? They would not say it's because the stranger with me didn't help. They would come up with all kinds of rationalizations or justifications like, well, I wasn't sure I heard it right, or I assume someone else would come to the assistance of the, the, the person in need, uh, or I was just doing my job filling out the survey. Um, so uh, those are rationalizations. The real reason unconsciously processed was that the stranger with them was not doing anything him or herself. It's, it never ceases to blow my mind, and you get this from all sorts of branches of psychology, how it's not just how unaware we are of the ultimate causal underpinnings of our behavior, but how we invent these elaborate stories to justify that behavior that in no way track to it. So I bet you if you went back to those participants and asked them why they didn't help, they'd never say because of this other person. They'd have this huge justification in their heads. I'll give you one more. The, this It's so bad, but I don't know if you've ever watched the reality TV show What Would You Do? I don't think so. <laughs> you, you, might, you might like it. it. It's so dumb. But what they do is they, they stage... At its best, it's like little mini psychology experiments. It's worst, it's just dumb trash TV. But they stage these little scenarios, and it's like, someone's in need, would you help? And one of the things they show is actually, you, you make a small tweak in, um, you know, like you say, just a very small input tweak, and you can get people absolutely walking on by and doing nothing. Here's one I found really shocking, is if you see a woman's drink get drugged, by a man who's trying to take advantage of her, will you help her? And this is as horrifying as it gets, right? Right, right, right. And everyone will say, of course I would. Sure. Actually, it pretty much depends on whether the woman is dressed conservatively or in a way that's, wow. like, broadcasting some sort of... If she's, like, in a dress or a suit, right? <laughs> and if she's in a dress, no one will help her. Mm. And if she's wow. dressed conservatively, wow. everyone will help right. her. And that maps, they tried it with, like, black and white women. They were wondering, like, would a black woman get less help? And actually, that didn't matter. Nor did it matter so much if she was, like, presenting as upper class or lower class. They thought that might matter. It was the extent to people were seeing her in a sexualized way. And what I found was interesting is everyone, when they were interviewed, 
not only had no idea that that's what triggered the behavior, mm, right, but right, they, they had this right. huge other story. So the people who did help obviously got to paint themselves as the hero, but then the people who didn't had this huge story about it wasn't my place, I didn't actually see it, I didn't know that was happening, and you rewind <laughs> the tape and they absolutely knew it oh, was sure, happening. Sure, 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 um, sure. And that was, that's probably one of the most disturbing cases I can think of, but the the variable, it's so small, it's like a woman could take a business jacket off to reveal a dress, and then suddenly whether you would come to her assistance is flipped. Wow. I'm, I've not seen that before. Uh, but it, it's, first of all, incredibly disturbing. Uh, secondly, it doesn't surprise me too much in light of the studies I was just talking about. So that kind of pattern seems to show up again and again and again. Uh, uh, the impact of situational variables on our behavior, uh, unconsciously impact influencing our behavior in such a way that afterwards we may not be able to even report why we behave that way in in, a, in an accurate or a veridical manner. Um, so uh, I need to look into that particular example, but it doesn't surprise me, even though it really disappoints me. Yeah. No, and I mean the the all of these can. I mean, there's there's good ones and bad ones, but. Here's, here's one final question, we are coming up on time, is it's obviously very disappointing when do, someone does something painful, obviously immoral in the case of shocking someone. Although, like like you say, the, the, having the authority, that figure there is putting your thumb on the scale in a pretty serious way, mm. or fails to help in both of the cases we gave. But isn't it also kind of disappointing when someone does? I mean, those guys who, like, you know, you see a guy put something in a woman's drink or you see someone collapse and you run to hell and you do something, mm -hmm. you get to feel like a hero about that. Isn't it actually in some cases, in, in, I, I'm having an intuition and you could say how, how valid is this intuition, but isn't it also quite disappointing if what ultimately got you to do that was one of these just very small behavioral cues? How much can you really feel good about it, you know? Right. Right, right, right. So uh, that would be disappointing too. too. Um, now, I'll take good behavior over bad behavior any day, right? Right. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'm always going to be happy that, that uh, you know, there was an intervention to prevent the drugging of the woman, um, I'll, as opposed to not intervening. Um, but the motivational story, and this takes us back to our kind of earlier discussion of character and virtue, motivation matters too, in addition to behavior. And if the only motivational story is one in which uh, has to do with some kind of impression management or some kind of uh, you know momentary hedonistic benefit or, or the like of that, uh, I'm not going to be so crazy about that. And that's what we saw in the case that I gave at the beginning of our empirical discussion with the shopping mall and the smells, right? Thumbs up that those people were making change for the dollar, 66% of them, were, or uh, roughly that. Um, but if the underlying motivation is so that they can maintain their momentary feelings of good mood that they got uh, as a result of the, the Mrs. Fields cookie smell, uh, that's not virtue. That's, that doesn't give the person a lot of moral credit, uh, deserving a lot of moral praise. Now, if I could say one, one more thing. Uh, uh, this, um, so far, could paint a very you know, negative light on things. But remember, my, my overall account is a mixed character. So we're we have some good sides to our character and some bad sides to our character. And piggyback on what we just talked about, there is uh, one area, at least, of the psychological research which suggests that when people are in this state, this particular state, not only are they more likely to help, but they're also more likely to help for the right kind of reasons, <clears throat> the virtuous reasons, the, the reasons which we would find to be admirable and we would praise them for. And this uh, area of research has to do with empathy. And this is a you know, big topic, which maybe I shouldn't be opening up in a can of worms right at the end of our time together. But just I really want to paint a more, more balanced picture than we've had so far, uh, that there really are some good sides to our character. This is not why I think we're, we're mostly vicious people. So uh, just to expand on that a little bit more, uh, research by Batson in particular, but by a number of other psychologists has found that when you empathize with the suffering of others, when you adopt their perspective and try to see the world through their eyes rather than your own eyes, you're much more likely, other things being equal, to help them if you can. So that's just, that's a long-standing result in psychology going back 40 years. But the really interesting and cool thing is that not only are you much more likely to help them, but you're much more likely to help them for altruistic 
or selfless motivating reasons uh, out of care for them and helping to alleviate their suffering irrespective of whether you benefit or not in the process. So uh, the takeaway message for me is that there are many situations where we don't help. There are many situations where we tend to help, but perhaps not for the most virtuous reasons. But there are also many situations where we could help and do help and in an empathetic state of mind, help for the right kind of reasons, what I would call the compassionate kind of reasons. And so our character is quite complex uh, and it, we have to accept the bad and the good as a matter of empirical reality, although of course, ultimately as a matter of normative or ethical reality, I hope we'll work towards cultivating the good and against uh, continuing to exhibit the bad. Great. Well, Christian, thank you so much for coming on. Before we go, um, if listeners want to get your book or follow you, where should they go? Uh, the book is called The Character Gap. It's available in all the, the usual places like Amazon. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the book with anyone uh, who, or just anything that was said today uh, uh, by email. You can just Google my name and find my email address. It's publicly available, of course. And then uh, on social media, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter at character gap one word character gap so i'd love uh to continue this discussion uh, uh in the future cool thanks so much for your time today thank you so much for having me it was a great discussion thank you for listening to the political philosophy podcast if you liked the episode please do like and subscribe and if you're a long-term listener please do consider supporting us on patreon Coming up next week, I'll be talking to Shadi Hamid, who is a Brooklyn's Institute researcher on Islamism. That'll be a two-part conversation. In the first part, we'll discuss what Islamists believe, what are the differences between different types of Islamists, what motivates them. And in the second, we discuss, stroke, sort of debate how liberalism, a mature liberalism, should reconcile itself with really foundational divisions amongst populations about what is the good life. When people foundationally and irreconcilably disagree, how should liberalism handle that? And we offer two slightly distinct versions of liberalism there. After that, I'm thinking of trying something a little bit different. So I put up a poll on Twitter and asked, what would you like to see more of on the podcast? And it, it was evenly split between a few of them, but by far and away the winner was people said they wanted to hear more about political ideologies. So, great. This is a subject I've been published on and I've written a fair bit about, and also I've spent the last eight years working for political parties and um, various social advocacy groups, so I have a certain amount to say here. And I was thinking of every now and again, not often, but every now and again, doing an episode where we don't have a guest and I just take on a particular political ideology. And I'm thinking of starting with libertarianism. Some people have asked me why I've been critical of libertarianism, given the, you know, my obvious affinity for John Stuart Mill, and I do invoke a number of classically liberal concepts and categories. So I thought it might be fun to talk about the history, the origins, the development, the morphology of libertarianism, as well as my own personal views on it. So I might do just like an editorial episode on that, and we'll get feedback, and if people don't like it, we won't do any more of them, and if people do, I might take on other ideologies. So I was thinking of maybe doing an episode, you know, a few months later, where I could take on some of the ideologies on the far left and explain why I find some of them interesting and some of them to be practical and ideological and intellectual dead ends. So I'll keep you posted on that, but give me feedback on that. If you'd like to see a few episodes devoted specifically to political ideologies, then I'm thinking of doing a trial one in about a month's time, and we'll see how that goes. After that, Professor Rupert Reed will be back on the podcast, and we're going to be talking about Wittgenstein and language, and we're going to be applying theories of language to theories of power. Then um, Professor Dale Martin, the New Testament scholar, will be back on, and we will be talking about gender and gender identity 
in the New Testament, which goes some kind of weird and sometimes quite dark places, but it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. And then, stay tuned, I am going to announce um, a couple more guests soon in areas of philosophy of science. So we're going to do episodes on the ethics of lab-grown meat, and we're going to do an episode on um, sleep patterns and body clocks and what that means for morality. So those are two fun, interesting, quirky topics. I'm going to announce guests for those soon. So stay tuned if you want to catch all of that. And come on, right? That sounds pretty cool. Like, okay, I nerd out over this stuff, but that that is an interesting bunch of people we have coming up, I think. Anyway, all of whom are uniquely qualified to talk on their subjects. Well, maybe not me for the editorial one. But anyway, do like and subscribe. Um, share on your social media if you want to support. Uh, positive reviews on iTunes always help. And if you're able, support on Patreon. So that's what we've got coming up. Thanks again for listening, and hopefully I will see you next week. Well, I won't. I won't see any of you because it's an audio recording, but hopefully you'll join us again. Thanks again for listening.